Hello, welcome to My Camino, the podcast. I'm Dan Mullins, and it's great to have your company. They didn't realize it, and I didn't write anything down, so I can't remember exactly what they were saying, but I remember remarking to myself, I am witness to some pretty interesting therapy going on out there. (laughs) They probably didn't even realize that what they were saying was profound because they're so wrapped up in it. It was fascinating seeing that side of it. That voice you just heard is Angela Hemming, and we'll get to Angela in just a moment. But first, let me take the chance to wish you all a very happy new year. 2021 certainly had its challenges, particularly here in Australia and in Canada. Uh, But I get a feeling 2022 is going to be a wonderful year. So happy new year to all my wonderful listeners. It's going to be great to bring you more than 50 new Camino stories to brighten your lives. May you and your loved ones experience true joy and love in 2022. And thanks for your continued support. This is a podcast about the Camino de Santiago. El Camino is a pilgrimage to the remains of Christ's Apostle St. James in the Spanish city of Santiago de Compostela. The most popular route is the Camino Francaise, a 500-mile or 800-kilometre pilgrimage from Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port across the Pyrenees via Pamplona, Lorogno, Burgos, Leon, and on to Santiago de Compostela, St. James under a field of stars. Pilgrims walk the Camino to find, I guess, two things we simply can't find in our day-to-day grind, space and time. You'll live the most simple existence you can imagine. You get up, throw on your backpack, and you walk. There are no requirements other than following yellow arrows painted on the walls of homes and buildings and churches and on the road and in your heart. You'll get lost and found. You'll cry and laugh. You'll sleep during the day and not much at night. You'll be thirsty and you might one night drink a little too much. You'll stumble and dance. You'll listen and be heard. There is no routine other than you determining where you want to go and when. And in that, there is a true feeling of freedom. I love the Australian cartoonist and poet Michael Lunig. Google his work. You'll love it. L-E-U-N-I-G. One of my favourite quotes of his, Each day is a lifetime. In the morning we are born. The day lies before us, vast and bright and new. I remember walking from the Spanish town of Astoria on two separate occasions. The first time I had spent the night before with the wife and daughter of a famed Spanish guitarist, Venancio Garcia Velasco. The family lives in Madrid and holidays in Astoria. And they took me to the Gaudi Episcopal Palace and the majestic cathedral, the fortress walls built by the Romans. They also took me to the former home of the Spanish poet Leopoldo Pinero, a wonderful museum dedicated to his life and his work. But the second time I left Astoria, it was the morning after a bout of food poisoning. My friends Scott and Belinda from New Zealand placed a rose on my backpack as I walked to cheer me up. It was a long day, not a long distance, to the small village of Ravenel del Camino. As you climb the gentle hill of the high street to a side street, you come to Refugio Gokelmo. It's run by the British Confraternity of St. James, and I've stayed there twice and I cannot recommend it highly enough. You know you're in a British establishment because they serve afternoon tea, milk tea and biscuits at four o'clock. It's very civilised. 
<laughs> the first year I was there, I arrived early, placed my pack in front of the refugio to reserve my spot and headed uptown for a cold drink. It was about 32 degrees Celsius. And I pulled up a stool at a bar and asked for a Clara con limon. Someone said, are you Australian? And I said, yes. That was the moment I met Jenny Heesh from Cronulla. She'd picked up a bug on the flight from Australia and was quarantined from the albergue for fear of infecting pilgrims and was staying in a hotel up the street. Our meeting at that bar that day was pure Camino coincidence. That afternoon at the albergue's afternoon tea, one of the hospitaleres placed something in my hand. It was a Tim Tam wrapped in tissue. Now, those of you who don't know what a Tim Tam is, it's an Australian biscuit. It's basically a chocolate biscuit dipped in chocolate. Jenny from Cronulla had told the hospitalera that there was an Australian staying at the albergo that day and she decided to surprise me with a treat from home. That hospitalera was Angela Hemming from Canada and Angela's on the line. Welcome, Pilgrim. Thank you, Dan. (laughs) Have I got it right in saying that you got the pack of Tim Tams from Jenny because you'd fallen in love with them while in Australia? That is true. Yeah, I used to live in Australia. Um, I'd been there many times. I just think it's God's country. And apart from the Camino, I mean, it's the one place in the world that I just, I really, really love. And uh, when I heard that I was going to be volunteering in Rabanal, Jenny and I uh, got in touch by email. And I was thrilled to be working with an Australian. I hadn't met many Australians on the Camino. And so I said to her, oh, can you uh, bring me a package of Tim Tams? Because I can't get them in Canada. And so she did. (laughs) But now you can, right? Oh, yes. Well, yeah, I I probably shouldn't because I I love them too much. But (laughs) yes, they're available here now. So then she told me that uh, that one afternoon that, hey, an Australian has just checked in. So I said, oh, goody, I'm going to surprise him at afternoon tea with a little Tim Tam. It was such a lovely day. Gosh. I'd give anything to be back there now, but anyway. So so tell us, how did the Camino come into your life, Angela? Well, I first heard about it in the 90s. I was watching a travel TV show that was talking about the Camino de Santiago. And I, I remember hearing about it and thinking, that sounds exactly like the kind of thing I would love to do. I love walking. Uh, I love meeting people from all over the world. I have traveled all over the world with nothing but a carry-on backpack, so that is familiar to me. I've studied French and Spanish in high school, but the limiting issue in my life then was that I just couldn't afford to take six weeks out of my life, and and I didn't have the money either to travel to Europe at that time, so it just wasn't the right time. And then fast forward 20 years, a friend of mine who I went on regular walks with said that she was beginning to train for the Camino de Santiago and she was going to walk it for her 65th birthday. And I remembered, yes, the Camino, of course, I know exactly what that is. And we toyed around with the idea of maybe doing it together. But there were some uh, family issues going on with me at the time that just prevented me from leaving at that time. So she went on her own uh, and had an amazing time. And two years later, I turned 50, and I decided that year that it was the right time for me. I was going to make the time. I had the money, and it turns out it was exactly the right time for me to do it. 
Yeah. So how many times have you walked now? Well, I walked the Camino Frances once in 2015. Uh, the year that I met you when I was volunteering, I walked just the Meseta. I walked from Burgos to Leon because uh, that was part that I... I skipped the first year, oh. and I really wanted to connect those dots. So before I even started volunteering anywhere, I uh, I walked the Meseta. And then in 2019, I walked the Camino Aragonés from Po in France, France to um, Puente la Reina in Spain, which was 333 kilometers, and was hoping to get back in 2020, but we all know what happened to that. <laughs> exactly. So yeah. where, where did this love of the great outdoors come from who knows <laughs> i mean i've grew up in a beautiful part of the world i live on the southern tip of vancouver island on the west coast of canada and oh. it's a very outdoorsy culture here you know we hike and kayak and um sail and swim and ski and cycle so um that's just yeah it's just always been something that i love and I've been fortunate to live in, in a place that's in a part of the world that's beautiful. So it's just, that's just natural. And now that I've done the Camino, I mean, that's all I want to do for the rest of my life in terms of my vacations. I want to walk pilgrimages. And, and for me, that's just, it's, it's the best way to, to have a, a break from your life or to learn something about your life, which, I mean, the, the, Pilgrimages do both of those things. And fortunately, there are thousands and thousands of kilometers in Europe and in other countries yeah. um, to explore. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I met uh, somebody from the Galician government in Australia two years ago, and he said there's more than 80,000 kilometers of Caminos in Europe. Yeah, I believe it. Yeah, yeah. How fantastic. I think it would take you 10 years. If you walk 25Ks every day, it would take you 10 years. But we can do mm. it. You and I can do it, Angela. We'll be fine. Well, <laughs> <laughs> what made you want to become a hospitalera? Uh, well, like a lot of people, on my first Camino, uh, I started sort of fantasizing about what it would be like to have my own albergue someday. Yeah. You know, I mean... Every albergue is different, and you're walking through it saying, oh, well, the beds weren't that great in this one, and, well, the food wasn't great in that one, and so you start piecing it together, and I kept thinking, why Why do none of these places have a hot tub, man? <laughs> I've got sore muscles. That'd be really great. Uh, so I finished the Camino and made some big changes in my life, but, but in the meantime, I had fallen in love with Spain and with the Camino hard. And I really couldn't wait to get back. And I knew that if I had this idea that maybe someday when I'm retired, I would have my own little albergue somewhere, I should probably go and volunteer first and see what it's actually like, because it's very different than, than the pilgrim life. Um, it's a lot of hard work and yeah, it's very different. So in Canada, we have a two-day hospitalero training course, and so I took that. That sort of certifies you, and then they connect you with the Spanish organization that places volunteer hospitaleros at the Donativo albergues in various parts of Spain. So uh, that was my motivation. I decided that I wanted to do more than one stint and each volunteering stint is 14 to 15 days. It's it's a full-on two weeks with no time off. 
And I decided I wanted to experience more than one place just so that I could learn as much as I could about what I was thinking about taking on someday. What I ended up doing was spending the whole summer in Spain. I volunteered at three albergues on two different Caminos in different parts of Spain and and learned a hell of a lot. <laughs> Did you enjoy it? Yes, yes. It was rewarding, but how can I put this? I, I bit off a little too much more yeah. than I should have uh, chewed. Uh, and, and people who were experienced hospitaleros told me this, that the Spanish organization, I had, when I said to them I want to volunteer at two albergues, they placed me at two places back to back. Right. which meant that I was going to have to work for 30 days straight. Oh. Yeah. And people had said to me, mm, that's probably too much. And I thought, well, I think it is too, but that's what the Camino is giving me. So I will just accept it and I will see how it goes. But it, it was a bit much, especially because the first albergue was the most work. It was in Grañón where we were not only welcomed up to 90 people a day, but we had to cook dinner for them and breakfast for them. And the door was never allowed to be closed and locked, even when we were cleaning in the morning. So we had pilgrims arriving all day long. There was a lot of work at that one. And then I had to go straight from there to Salamanca on the Via de la Plata, which is in, you know, another part of Spain. And, and then my third posting was where I met you in Rabanal. And at each of these three albergues, we had staffing problems. We were short-staffed in each one, and which meant that there was more work for all of us than any of us had really bargained for. So what I learned about that experience is that, yes, I still want to have my own albergue someday, but it's going to be very small and manageable. <laughs> you know, not 90 people. Although I can cook for 90 people day after day, three-course meal, no problem now that I've had that practice, but it's not something that I really want to do. <laughs> oh, wow. What an extraordinary experience. So what's the best part about being a hospitalera? And perhaps what did you not enjoy so much? I find that people go to to the hospitalero experience thinking it's going to be the same thing as as the pilgrim experience. And it's really not. One of the things that I didn't enjoy was the fact that I was meeting all of these amazing people, but they were gone the next day. So you don't get the continuity of being able to walk with people day after day and get to know them and make those wonderful friendships. You're meeting a lot of wonderful people, but then, you know, you have to say goodbye and then you're cleaning toilets and getting everything ready for the next crowd of people that comes in. So that's less than desirable. The rewarding part was just the feedback that I got from people about the things that I was doing and other people were doing to support them. And also being a being witness to the sort of therapy or transformation that the Camino does to pilgrims. So it's not doing that to you as a hospitalero necessarily because you aren't getting the exercise and, you know, the physical benefit of walking a pilgrimage. I mean, there, it's physical cleaning the toilets every day, no doubt. But I remember when I was in Salamanca, the Via de la Plata was not a route that I had walked before, even though I knew what it was and I knew all about it. And Salamanca was a beautiful city, but it was my first time there. And I was in Salamanca in the first two weeks of July, which was really hot. 
in the daytime out there, it got to be over 44 degrees Celsius. Some of the pilgrims coming into my albergue said that they took a taxi for the last 20K because their water was too hot to drink. And it was just really inhospitable and dangerous for them to be walking. So the rewarding part in that albergue was just being witness to the kinds of things that people were saying when they when they were coming in hot and exhausted and and taking off their packs and just checking in and talking to other people and they didn't realize it and I didn't write anything down so I can't remember exactly what they were saying but I remember remarking to myself I am witness to some pretty interesting therapy going on in out there (laughs) and like I say they probably didn't even realize that what they were saying was profound because they're so wrapped up in it but um yeah it was it was fascinating seeing that side of it I think it it could be challenging there's certainly no question about that but and as you say very rewarding and you're sort of watching transformation from afar do you think it's for everyone being a hospitalera no. <laughs> um, no, no. I mean, you have to, that's why the, the, the two days of training is very important. Um, uh, but even beyond that, it's good to talk to other hospitaleros and find out their various stories and just learn about, about uh, you know, just getting a really realistic picture about, yeah. about the workload. You, you need to be somebody, ideally, who either speaks... Lang- other languages, even a smattering of helps or is able to try to, you know, communicate with smiles and charades and whatever, because you're, you will have people coming in who don't speak a word of English and you still need to communicate the rules of the place and what's going to happen when. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's, it's a fascinating sort of life study in a way because people are coming in that tired, the, the, stressed and I, I imagine I haven't been back to the Camino in a few years now but I imagine it's very crowded now so the the race for beds would be very competitive and people would be lining up and so it must be very difficult. Angela you know I've said here before Australians and Canadians and Brits and Americans and most of us lead very pampered lives we don't wish for much but watching pilgrims from all around the world come through the door of an albergue what is the allure of the Camino? You've spent so much time in the company of pilgrims. What do you think and what do they tell you is the allure of the pilgrimage, the Camino? I don't remember anybody telling me that. I can only sort of speak for myself yeah. as a as a pilgrim. The allure for me is, for one thing, the simplicity of it, which you've talked about many times and other people have on your podcast, just the fact that you just all you have to do when you're there is get up in the morning and find the first yellow arrow. That's all you have to do because that'll lead you to the next one and the next one and so on and so on. Yeah. And so, you know, you don't need a map. You don't even need a guidebook. All you need to do is just have your eyes open and be looking for those signs and signals. And they will lead you. And, the, and then it's just up to you to decide each day how far you're going to go and where you're going to have a cup of coffee and where you're going to spend the night. That simplicity and that sort of lack of having to plan out your life is is so luxurious because back home we we don't have that we we have to map it all out for ourselves. Yeah, did you find that experience humbling? 
what being on the Camino? Yeah, the fact that you you strip back to nothing. Nobody cares what you do for a living. You don't have any possessions. You're really just what you have and what you are that day. Did you find it humbling? Yes, I loved it. It's the great leveler. I absolutely loved it. Um, and I even met some famous people on the Camino. I, I walked for a week with Glenn Hansard, the Irish singer. Oh, wow. And yeah, I didn't even know who he was. He just looked like another pilgrim and he was part of our gang. And wow. then somebody said to me, do you, know, do you know who that is? I said, yeah, oh, no, I don't. Who is he? Oh, and wow. then, yeah, we spent an amazing week together laughing and singing and drinking beer. And we've had reunions since then in Ireland and Canada. And wow. um, yeah, I mean, there there are famous people walking amongst us on the Camino and they're there for the same reasons we are, you know, yeah. being attracted to pilgrimage, which is not the same thing as bouncing around Europe with a backpack. Pilgrimage is, it's difficult physically and I think it really attracts people who are at a crossroads in their lives or they have serious questions they want to have answered or they're celebrating a big birthday or there's some sort of big milestone or issue. Yeah, it attracts us so that we can work through that and hopefully find an answer. And I just love that about it, that that it doesn't matter who you are and nobody cares what kind of a car you have in your garage or what you do yeah. for a living, as you said. Yeah. Yeah. What did you learn about yourself, do you think, walking the Camino, Angela? Oh, geez. So many things, Dan. Everything, <laughs> small, everything from small little things like how to pee in the woods without taking your backpack off, <laughs> which I, I only did once in the Pyrenees. And then after that, I realized, what am I doing? I can take my backpack off. Um, <laughs> to everything from that to uh. major major things. I mean, and, and this is not something that you would have learned about me. It's not something we've ever talked about because I haven't shared anything about it on social media, but, um, my life completely changed after my first Camino. Um, I had been in a marriage that was, I was married to a lovely man who, who I loved, but I didn't feel that we were fully compatible. And, over time, over the years, that issue became from something small that I didn't think was fixable to the elephant in the room that was just so hard to keep dancing around. And I didn't have the guts, to be honest about that, because I was afraid of opening up that Pandora's box. I was afraid of the consequences of being that honest. And so I went to the Camino thinking, hoping that this pilgrimage would give me a lightning bolt of inspiration about what to do about that. And the other question that I wanted answered when I went on the Camino was, what should I do about my career? Because I've been working in a field for a long time and the work was starting to dry up and I was thinking, mm, okay, I think it's time to change, but I don't know, I don't know in what direction to go. So I was attracted to the Camino partly because it was a challenging adventure for my 50th year. And it was something I'd thought about doing for a long time. And I thought it would be great. But the pilgrimage part of it, the part that was attracting me was, I'm hoping that this will help me figure out these two big problems that I, I'm not having any success with when I'm at home. And so the two big things that I, I had to learn were, don't be so afraid of the future that you're paralyzed in the present moment. And if you're honest with yourself and with other people, 
good things will happen. So the way that the Camino taught me these very important lessons happened all the way along the trail. The first example was when I was in Zubiri, which is what just after you're up and over the Pyrenees and you're, continue, you're descending. And my legs were killing me. And I thought, haven't I done enough training for this thing? I thought I was prepared. I was so tired. And I opened up the John Brierley guidebook and I opened it up to the back page where there's the map of Spain and he has all the various Caminos with little colored dots heading off to Santiago. And I saw the route that I was on and the fact that I had only walked two dots so far. And I thought, oh my God, how am I going to make the rest of the 50 dots all the way to Santiago? This is just overwhelming. And in that moment, I realized... The only way I'm going to get to Santiago is by not being so afraid of 800 kilometers and only focusing on what I can do that day. So from that moment, I closed the back page and I never looked at it again. Each day, I only opened up the page that referred to the stage that I was on that day. And I thought, well, today I I can probably do 20 kilometers. That's all I'm going to focus on. So that's what I had to continue practicing all the way along. And sure enough, I got to Santiago. It took me time. But I, if I had been so freaked out about the distance, that it wouldn't have got me on the plane even, even getting there in the first place, let alone walking yeah. from day to day. Yeah, right. And then the, the, other, the other thing um, about being honest. So I knew this about the Camino before I even got there because I knew people that had done it before that said, you know, you really have to be careful not to try to keep up with people who are faster than you or slow down for people who are slower than you. You have to walk at your own pace. And so I was aware of this, but, you know, until you're there, you don't really have an opportunity to practice it. So... There was a point where I was walking with a group of people that I was really enjoying their company. And we'd been walking together for a while. And I was approaching a village and I was starting to limp. And my leg was really hurting. And I thought to myself, oh no, I think I'm going to be done at this village, but we've all been planning on walking 10 kilometers more. So I thought, okay, I'm going to have to practice it now. I'm going to have to be honest, and I'm probably never going to see these people again. And oh, no, oh, no, this is really depressing me. And on and on my brain went. So I thought, well, I got to practice this. So I sat down, and I opened up my guidebook, and I said, sorry, people, but my leg really hurts. I'm done for the day. I know you're all wanting to continue, but I'm just going to find a place to stay in this village here. And one by one, instead of moving on, they decided to stay with me. And we consequently found a place to stay a kilometer and a half off the Camino, which we never would have found if we continued. And we had one of the best days. And it was a highlight of the Camino. And something similar happened each time I was honest with myself and the people around me, something good happened. So I needed to learn those things. And the Camino just drilled it into me time and time again. So that by the time I got to Santiago, I was, I was actually approaching Santiago, walking slower and slower, thinking, oh, no, I don't have the answers that I came with. I haven't had a lightning bulb moment. And I was really down about that. But I remembered that people had said to me, 
sometimes the full effect of the Camino doesn't happen until weeks or months after you get home. So don't worry about it if you don't have the answers by the time you get there. Unbeknownst to me, I already was having trained in me the skills that I needed to tackle what was waiting for me when I got home. So <laughs> I got home. Yeah. And yeah. And uh, without having the answers, I was fully transformed, but everything at home was the same. And it was a brutal culture shock coming back. People could see it in my face that there was something different about me. You know, you get the glowing Camino face that everybody sure. gets. But I also knew that that I had been this Camino to me, it felt like a deep ocean wave propelling me slowly, slowly, but strongly across Spain, learning all the things that I needed to learn as I went along. And that momentum continued as I got home. I could, it, it wouldn't crash on the shore at home. I, it just had to keep propelling me forward. And I thought, I cannot be any more afraid of consequences. I have to be honest. I have to keep being honest. So I sat my husband down and I had the difficult conversation where I had to say, I love you, but I don't think we should be married anymore. I finally said the words that I'd been so afraid of saying. And the Camino was the catalyst for that. It was helping me just push past this blockage that I'd had for such a long time. And yes, it unleashed a Pandora's box of difficulty, as you would imagine. I mean, separating from a marriage is, is never easy, even if both parties want to do it, and then that's rare. But good things have also come from that too. And so, yeah, there was a there was my life before the Camino, and there's my life after. And as I say, it was a it was a catalyst, and it taught me some really important things that I needed to learn at the time. Why do you think it gives us this perspective? Why do you think you're a busy person? You're a very well educated person. You're like me. I mean, I'm a busy guy. I'm a well educated guy. I can't wait to get back there. I can't wait to feel that feeling that you get on the Camino. What is it? Why does it give us this perspective? Why does this long walk give us this, I don't know, this reality when walking over the top of the mountain across the street doesn't? Because it's long and it's physical and it brings you into the present moment in a way that walking around the block or across the street does not. So in my case, um, it wasn't that I didn't have enough time before to think about my problems and find a solution. I had all the time in the world. I had had years to come up with a solution. And I was just going round and round in circles in my brain without coming up with one. So I had to remove myself far away from my normal life. So being on the Camino in another country, for starters, that's that's taking me far away from my situation, putting me in a place that's unfamiliar. But because it's a it's a difficult uh, it's a difficult physical activity that lasts for a long time. Yeah. The effect on the effect on your body is is dramatic, and I noticed it right away. I mean, in the first couple of days crossing the Pyrenees. I was starting to develop, develop a blister and I had sore muscles. So every step, I'm thinking, watch out for that rock. Watch out for that stick. I can't step on that thing without proper balance because that's going to make my blister hurt even more. Step by step by step, your 
brought into the present moment. So the problems that I went to the Camino with were not on the top of my mind. They weren't things that I was meditating on the whole time there. I They went to the back of my brain yeah. where they probably continued to percolate in my subconscious or whatever. They never went away. They were there. But physically and mentally, I was in the present moment. And I I think that's part of it. I really do. Wow, great answer. Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> I, I want to talk about Canadians. I, I walked with Doug and Miles and Kevin. They were so fantastic. I loved them. We had a Canadian guy live with us for a year in Bondi Beach. He was a teacher, Tom Gulak from Roblin, Manitoba. And when he arrived in Bondi Beach to come and live with me for a year, he'd never seen the ocean. So the first time he, the first time he'd see, he saw the beach was at Bondi Beach, and it was 42 degrees that day in Sydney. He had come from minus 40, I think, uh, in Roblon. Uh. It was just the most wonderful thing. But I love Canadians. What is it about your people? You, what makes you so special, so so welcoming? What, what is it about it? about Canadians. <laughs> it's hard for a Canadian to say that because we're just too humble and modest. <laughs> sorry, 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 sorry. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think part of it is our history, right? We're part of the Commonwealth, just like you are, you know. So I think that we're well known as peacekeepers. I think that sort of cooperation and keeping the peace and being polite is sort of part of our makeup. And and partly we we can't help, and so does the world, to compare us with our neighbors to the south, which have a very different character. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it's just different. So yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. How so? How does that welcoming spirit, that Canadian spirit, manifest itself in a pilgrim? Again, I can really only speak for myself. I just I loved speaking with people from all over the world. Right away on the Camino, I lost all my inhibitions about trying to speak foreign languages, which was, which was big for me. I had, I'm always, I've always been good at languages. We have to learn English and French in, in school sure, here. But yeah. uh, so I'd studied French, I'd studied Spanish, I'd lived in Denmark for a year, I'd studied Japanese in university, but I'm not fluent in anything besides English. And here, if at home, if I meet somebody who speaks another language, I'm always a little self-conscious because I'm not good enough at it but right away on the Camino I found myself in situations where I knew actually more French than the German person next to me so I was able to help them figure out what was going on around and then as soon as we stepped into Spain I knew Spanish whereas the Australian I was walking with didn't and I was able to help her and so I just found myself just completely uninhibited from speaking even a few words as long as I could help the people that was that were around me, and and that was another re factor, I think, in thinking, wow, I think I think maybe being a hospitalera might be my thing someday, so that I can you know communicate with people and help them. Yeah, yeah. Do you have a favorite place on the Camino? Anywhere in the Basque region. The Basque region really in France and Spain, just really called to me. And partly it's because I was born in Bayonne in the, in the French uh, Basque country. Oh. Um, my, yeah, my parents were traveling around Europe when my mom was pregnant with me. And I was almost born in Spain, but ended up being born right over the border in France. And it's, it's a beautiful city. And that was another thing sort of drawing me to the Camino was the fact that when you do the Camino Frances, 
you usually have to go through Bayonne or Biarritz to get up to Saint-Jean to begin. And so, um, and I hadn't been back to Bayonne, only been back once since I was a baby. So now whenever I return to that part of the world, I make sure that I spend a couple of days there. And Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port, of course, I mean, it's it's such a beautiful village. I stayed there for two nights before beginning my first Camino, and, and I thought, oh, I could have stayed here a lot longer. It's just got a, it's, it's beautiful, and it's got so much history and such a wonderful energy because yeah. it's, so many people start the Camino there, so there's all this excitement about what's ahead. Yeah, I bought some fruit one afternoon in Saint-Jean, and, and I was walking through the uh, little plaza before you head up the hill. And I just had some bananas and pears in my hand. And someone came up to me and said, um, Buen Camino. And I thought, oh, oh, you're, you're a pilgrim. I, and she said, well, of course. And I thought, why? <laughs> like, do I look like a pilgrim? I go, I don't understand. You know, I was wearing a pair of shorts and a T-shirt. And she said, well, yeah, of course. And we just sat down on the on the side of the path there and we talked for like an hour. And she told me her story. I told her my story. And I just remember thinking, what other town in the world would that happen? It's just yeah. such a beautiful place, full of all these people with expectations and so mm-hmm. excited to be on this journey. She was a first-time pilgrim. I was a second-time pilgrim. And it was just so lovely. And uh, I, I remember watching her. And her name is Mary. I'm watching her journey and, and, and sort of from afar. And, and she was much, much faster than me. She sort of powered through it all. But just sitting that day, it was that town and the energy of that town that brought us together. It was just such a lovely thing. Weird. Yeah. And, and the opposite of that is Santiago, which is the end of so many roads. And yeah. and that had an amazing energy too. And I, I didn't really know much about Santiago. And I got there five days early. I got there be, well before my, my flight home. And so I was able to welcome in uh, pilgrims that I'd, I had met over the, the preceding month. And so every night was another celebration, another fiesta, and that town is just has just an amazing energy um, because people are are celebrating and processing what they've learned. And so something that I would like to do someday is volunteer in the pilgrim office in Santiago. I think that would be incredible, meeting people who are yeah. finished their Camino. Yeah, yeah. There's a certain sadness, though, isn't there? Because you you kind of wish that you could keep walking. That's why so many people walk onto Finisterre and Muscia, because they want to keep yeah. walking. But there's a certain sadness, isn't there? Did you feel that? Oh yeah. When I like I said, when I was approaching Santiago, I I didn't want it to end. Yeah. Um, I I didn't I didn't feel that I had the answers I needed. Although, you know. I often think of the, the Camino as like the Wizard of Oz. It's There's so many parallels. The Camino is the yellow brick road. And Santiago is the Emerald City. And, you know, I was Dorothy crash landing in the beginning with problems that I needed some wizard in Santiago to solve. And so I'm meeting all sorts of interesting people as I go <laughs> along, only to find out at the end that I had the skills all along. All I had to do was know how to use the ruby slippers. <laughs> you know, it's just there's so many parallels with that. That, that is great so table. great. That is so great. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to be thinking about that all day now. That is so <laughs> great. Oh, my goodness. Being a, a pilgrim and a hospitalera, 
you've seen, I guess, kind of both sides, if you like. Let me ask you this question. What advice would you give to somebody who's thinking of walking the Camino? I would say go with an open mind. Whenever I return to the Camino now, either as a hospitalera or as a, as a pilgrim for whatever length of time, I don't go with questions anymore. I go with an open mind thinking, I wonder what it's going to teach me this time. And I think that's, that's the kind of attitude that you need to have. Don't try to plan or control. Um, just go with the flow and pack as lightly as you possibly can. Every gram, every ounce that you're carrying, you will feel it in your feet. Is it for everyone? Is the Camino for everyone? Yeah. I would love to say that it is. I feel like it's a... I would love to be able to go every year and have a mental, physical, spiritual reboot. For me, that's what it, what it would be. And unfortunately, the pandemic has prevented me from doing that. But as you know you know, judging by the people from the various countries you meet, it's the Camino, unfortunately, is largely a rich person's privilege. You know, most people in the world do not have the money or the time to be able to go and do that. We're so, so fortunate. If they could, it would be wonderful. Yeah, I think the Camino, everybody would get something out of it if they could go. I count myself one of the very fortunate people that has been able to experience this. Are you surprised that this journey, this pilgrimage, this adventure has come into your life and and provided so much guidance? Hmm. I don't think I'm that surprised. No. I mean, it's such a big part of my life now, and it has been for the last six years, that it's hard for me to imagine, imagine my life before as I say, there were there were all sorts of elements of it that I had been enjoying in other parts of my life. But, uh, you know, in terms of uh, traveling lightly and traveling alone and going on long walks and endurance activities and that kind of thing. Yeah, maybe I am a little surprised at how at the effect of the pilgrimage and the fact that it's it's really difficult to talk about with somebody who hasn't done it before because I remember what it was like for me before when I for, I bought my plane ticket and I was on I was going to be going to the airport and my friend who had done it before me said, "Buen Camino, you're a pilgrim now." And I thought, "Really?" Like I just I didn't get the word pilgrim even though I'd already bought my plane ticket and I was on my way there, I didn't get it until I was there. And of course, now I wouldn't call myself anything else. <laughs> now that's, you know, once once you're a pilgrim, you're, you're always, in my opinion, and you're part of this wonderful worldwide community of people who have done the Camino and understand it and appreciate it. Yeah. It's no surprise really, though, is it, for a girl born in... Basque country to parents who were wanderers and adventurous. You're absolutely right. And something else that was sort of made sense to me is the fact that my father's mother, so my grandmother, uh, who I never met, she died when I was 12 and she lived in England. She was a Catholic, a devout Catholic. And so I thought to myself, I bet she'd be really proud of me for doing the Camino. She would have known what it was, even though I'm not a Catholic she would have understood it. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot of, uh, mm. a lot of pieces of this puzzle that, that makes sense. <laughs> That's awesome. That's so cool. Okay. Tell us a Camino story. When I crossed the Pyrenees the first time, it was foggy, rainy, drizzly. I didn't see anything but the 
path in front of me and the people around me. And at one point, I was walking, approaching a woman who was wearing a backpack that looked like it was from the made in the 70s or something. It was like this retro backpack that was orange and green or something. And and I passed this woman and I said, I like your backpack. And she just smiled at me and, and nodded and kept going. So it turns out she and I were walking at the same pace because I saw her at some point every day for the next week. Her name was Annie and she's from the Netherlands and she was in her 60s, tall, strong, but a little sort of closed off. Like, you know, she would smile to say hello, but um, I didn't engage in too much conversation with her until one night, a week into the Camino, we were sitting at a restaurant having dinner together and we were opening up a bit about why we were both on the Camino. And she told me that she was there in honor of her and memory of her romantic partner of many years who'd just passed away of cancer. And when I heard that, I thought, oh, of course, this explains it. She's walking through some grief. This explains sort of the, the sort of closed off kind of impression that I'd got from her. And I thought, oh, I really respect what she's doing. Turns out she was an accordion repair person and accordion tuner by profession. And so was her romantic partner who had been her mentor. So they had this shared love of music and love of accordions. She said that the day that I met her on the top of the Pyrenees, she was walking at some point on her own through the mud and she looked down and she saw this tiny little piece of metal. She picked it up and saved it and she brought it out at the dinner table and showed me. And to me, it just looked like a little round piece of metal. I said, what's this? And she said, this comes from the inside of an accordion. And only somebody who takes accordions apart for a living would have recognized this specific piece of metal. And of course, because she was an accordion tuner and so was her partner, I was just blown away by this amazing thing, this Camino magic thing that had appeared on the trail for her. And I thought, wow, that's, that's really incredible. We kept walking together and with other people for about another week. And then I didn't see her again for the rest of the Camino because our paths diverged as they do. We kept in touch by email and she told me how her Camino ended. She walked the Meseta alone and then somewhere around Leon, she found herself at an albergue with about six people having a communal dinner and one by one, they all admitted why they were walking on the Camino and they were all there in honor of a partner or spouse mm -hmm who had passed away of cancer, just like her. And included in this group of people was a Canadian man named Paul, who she spent the rest of the Camino walking with and falling in love with. And they are still together six and a half years later. And I just, I've seen them. We, I've gone to visit them in the Netherlands. They've come to see me on the West Coast of Canada. And she is all smiles now compared to where she was in the beginning of the Camino, walking through grief, the Camino just transformed her life. And I tell this not as just as a Camino story, but as a love story. I just love it because it gives me hope, you know, that you might think that that 
life is over when your spouse passes away or something serious happens to you or when one chapter closes, that's it. And yes, you have to walk through the difficulty and the grief, but love and good things can be right around the corner. And and she is proof of that. Wow. And it just gives me hope. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was I felt again felt really privileged to to witness this story and this transformation. And maybe that little piece of the accordion was her key to the future. Yes, yes, exactly. Was her partner yeah. saying I, was her partner saying go forward, walk on. Right, right. Wow. Oh, that's fantastic. Oh, my gosh. I'm sitting, I've got tears in my eyes. I'll, I've got to stop <laughs> asking people to tell me a Camino story. I keep sitting here in tears all the time at the end of my podcast. <laughs> I want to tell you a Camino story, Angela. Jenny Heesh. Okay. So you were at Refugio Gorkelmo in Rabanel del yeah. Camino. And Jenny Heesh, I was with Jenny at the hotel in Rabanel that day. She was in quarantine because she was sick and she couldn't be with the pilgrims, right? And she said, you know, Dan, Angela, she's from Canada. She's a hospitalera, and you're going to see her later today. She's a huge crowded house fan. And I said, oh, okay. So later that night, I went up into the little reading room there in the albergue, and there was a guitar hanging on the wall. And I pulled it off. I said, do you mind if I play you a song? And you said, oh, yes, all right. And I started singing Fall at Your Feet, the crowded house song. And I've never forgotten the look on your face. You were like... What is happening here? It was just such a magic moment. And then it's something I'll remember forever. Pilgrims started to wander in and we ended up, there was like 20 or 30 of us in that room then in the end. And we were singing, I remember uh, singing uh, Imagine John Lennon and singing all sorts of songs for people, people singing along. It was something, as I said, I'll remember forever. And it's, it's brought us together today to have this chat, this exploration of our combined pilgrimage and you've been so generous and so I, I I guess so loving too and it's not just because you're Canadian it's because of you and I started quoting Michael Lunig because I knew you loved Michael Lunig each day is a lifetime in the morning we are born the day lies before us vast and bright and new being a day ahead of you here in Australia I can tell you tomorrow is magic and you and you deserve it. Walk on, Pilgrim. Buen Camino. Dan, you're brilliant. Buen Camino to you too. <laughs> My guest this week was the Canadian Pilgrim, Angela Hemming. Remember, I began by quoting the Australian artist Michael Lunig. Each day is a lifetime. In the morning we are born, the day lies before us, vast and bright and new. Just like a brand new year. Happy 2022 to all of my listeners. Thank you for your company as always. Until next week, I'm Dan Mullins. Buen Camino.